Due to the mature content of the following exposition of Proverbs 5-7, through 7, we would advise discretion to our younger listeners. This is an adult message, and we advise parental direction before listening to the following message. Thank you. All right, the first thing I want to affirm is the gospel. The gospel is the good news of salvation through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is the good news of salvation through Jesus. Jesus came to earth and lived perfectly and died sacrificially and rose from the dead so that we can be saved. And that encompasses all of our lives. In other words, we can be saved from the depravity of sexual sin. We can be saved from the discouragement of sexual loneliness. We can be saved from all of the the entrapments of this world's um, pressing upon us of of the sexual immorality that it does. Uh, And so what I want you to know is that when we affirm Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, we believe that that includes the salvation of your sexual life and your sexual identity. The second thing that I want to do is just make a a few prefaces before we read the passage in Proverbs. Um, The first one is about honesty and reverence. Um, I want in this sermon to be both honest and reverent. I, I think that the church for far too long has been silent about sex. Or, if it's not been silent about sex, it has basically demonized sex as if it is something that is evil. And I think that that has been a huge, huge disservice to Christians for decades. Because either we are confused, we are ignorant, or we think somehow that sex is something that God does not, has not created for our good. And so we want to be honest and we want to be reverent. I don't want to trivialize sex this morning. I don't want to to make it as if it's, uh, you know, this is some type of high school locker room or something, and we're going to talk about it in a way where that, that's not in a holy way. No, I don't want to do that either. The second thing I want to say is um, I want to address all those who are single. I want to be respectful toward everyone who is single. Um, I want to affirm your value to the church of Jesus Christ. I want to affirm your present calling to live powerfully and joyfully for the glory of God in your singleness. I want to remind you that marriage and sex should never be the barometer of your personal value, your self-worth, or your joy. Understand that, all right? Sexual fulfillment should never be the barometer of personal value, self-worth, or joyfulness. If you think about it, Jesus Christ is the most worthy and the most joyful person who's ever lived, and he was single, not married. The Apostle Paul was likely the most content and satisfied Christian who's ever lived, and he himself was not married. And so we need to understand that marriage and sex do not produce joy and satisfaction in the way that we um, would like to think that it does in this culture. The next thing I want to address is this, this idea that Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 offers a sexist perspective. If you read 
commentaries and books, and especially liberal theologians, they say that this is a sexist per- perspective on, on marriage and sex because it makes the, the woman out to be the predator and the man out to be the innocent person. And I just simply want to say that the book of Proverbs is a father writing to his what? His son. His son. And so the dad is encouraging his sons to live in a holy, righteous way. And not only that, his sons are on the right path. They they are choosing the way of wisdom. They are choosing the right path. And he's wanting to encourage them along the way of that right path. I believe that if he was writing to his daughter, he would write about the predatory nature of the man and of men in general. And he would warn her in the same way that he warned his sons. And so there is no sexist perspective. It is practical. It is helpful. It is real encouragement. And it is both useful for men and women and uh, boys and girls. And then I want to address how it falls in line with our overall theme. We are looking at wisdom in the book of Proverbs. And we've called it real wisdom for real life. And can anybody tell me how we've defined what wisdom is? What is wisdom? Anybody remember? Yeah, okay, go for it, Omar. To effectively navigate all of life toward what? You remember? Yes, the glory of God. Wisdom is the skill to effectively navigate all of life toward the glory of God. Marriage and sex falls underneath the umbrella of all of life, does it not? It does, All right. And and so what we can say is that Wisdom in sex is the ability, the skill to effectively navigate your sexuality toward the glory of God. To effectively navigate your sexuality toward the glory of God. Now if we have time at the end of this message, I I, I would like to do a little Q&A because I want to answer any pertinent questions that you may have. Hopefully we will have time for that. And so if you have a question that I don't answer, um, I'm going to try to give you the opportunity to ask it. And then the last thing I want to say before we read the text is, the message may sound a little bit more like a lecture than like a sermon, because essentially I want to be informative, I want to be helpful, but um, I'm likely not going to preach at you, so to speak. I'm just going to kind of um, give you a lesson about uh, sexuality and marriage and how the Lord wants us um, to follow Him in that area. All right, so let's look down at the text. And I'm going to read Proverbs 5, Proverbs 6, 20 to 35, and Proverbs 7. It's going to take about 9 or 10 minutes because I'll probably explain a few things along the way. But the reason I'm doing this is because I want us to see what the Lord says cumulatively, right here in this section. And then I I think it'll free me up to be able to talk more liberally in the lesson so that we're not constantly having to look up and down and look up and down and look up and down. so much text. Okay. Let me put myself on the timer here. (laughs) Got a new watch, y'all. All right, here we go. Proverbs 5, beginning in verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. 
that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman, that is a strange woman, a, a woman who defies the authority of God and the law of God. That's what a forbidden woman is. A, a forbidden woman is a woman who defies the good will of God Himself. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she's bitter as wormwood and sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. Notice that her appearance is smooth and beautiful, but the end result is bitter and deathly. See that? And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of your, her house. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, How I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. He is is saying that a person who follows the way of sexual deviancy follows the path of destruction. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Verse 20 of chapter 6. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Notice that the son has been instructed and trained by both the father and the mother in this area. And then notice in verse 21 the connection of what Phil preached last week from Proverbs 4.23. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman and from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. And do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. 
For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. I will just make a comment on that statement right there. Essentially what he's saying is that there are more death trap stings attached to committing adultery with a married woman than there are with a prostitute. And you can see why, because a prostitute's not attached relationally or covenantally with a wife, whereas a wife has all of those. And then he's going to go on to explain about what the different death traps are. In no way does it make lying with a prostitute okay. It just means that there's a lot to deal with when you commit adultery with another woman who is married. What verse are we on? 27. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Those are hypothetical questions. That the answer is, of course not. So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he's caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. You could even translate that. He who commits adultery is stupid. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. I will illustrate the, what the Proverbs writer is saying. By I read this week about a man who committed adultery with another man's wife. The husband found out, threatened to kill the man, and so the man built a fortress around his house, got guard dogs, built a fence, wires, flood lighting, and basically stayed in his house because he knew that that man was out to, to murder him. Because that, that, That's the idea of what is being described right here. Okay, now let's look at chapter 7. My son... Keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend. Folks, look at verse 4, the verse that I just read. He's basically saying to his son, you need to make wisdom your wife. You need to be intimate with wisdom. You need to know wisdom intimately. When it, that word sister is not saying like a chum or, or like a sibling. It's really more of like a wife. That's why he says intimate friend. Why? To keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. And then he goes to tell the story. For at the window of my house, I've looked out through my lattice and I've seen among the simple, I've perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, 
the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. Now, this word wily, it literally means guarded of heart. Guarded of heart. Now, the importance of that is this. She is willing to give her body to this man. She is willing to give sex to this man. She is willing to give fun to this man. But she is unwilling to give all that she is and all that she has. She's unwilling to give her heart. That that is the allurement of deviant sex. It, It is, apart from the covenant of marriage, it is a physical relationship with no strings attached. And that's what she is. She doesn't guard her body. She doesn't guard her appearance. She doesn't guard the marriage bed. She guards her heart. She doesn't want to give her heart away. She just simply wants to give her body. What verse are we? 11. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and in every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seat you eagerly, and I have found you. Now some of you are probably a little confused by by that, uh, because you're thinking, okay, she worshipped earlier today, and now she says that's prepared her to have sex with this man who's not her, her wife. What she's saying is, is I have presented some offerings like is some peace offerings or some thank offerings that involve food, the sacrifice of meat. And, and because Leviticus instructs certain sacrifices of meat to be made, only a portion of that meat is to be used in the sacrifice. The rest of the meat is to be used in fellowship meals and the enjoyment of fine dining, which was not a common occurrence in, in Israel. So what she's promising here is not only a full night of sex, but also a full night of feasting and dining. It's an allurement to get him to come into her house. I spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. In other words, I have fully prepared the most romantic night in my home as possible. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Of course, this is a lie. The word love is used twice, but there's nothing about love in this. This is all about lust. This is all about flesh. This is all about the gratification of depravity. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. In other words, he's on a business trip. He took a bag of money, so he's going to be gone a long time. He's going to come back at full moon because it's easier traveling during full moon. And so I know he's going to be gone a while. There's nothing to worry about. He's not going to come bursting in. I know for a fact we will not get caught. And so the dad says to the son about this whole scenario, he says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once... He follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. 
Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. I want to ask you a simple question, church. Does the dad belittle sexual sin or does he try to paint the most grave picture? The most grave picture. In no way, shape, or form does he try to belittle it. He paints a grave picture of sexual sin here. Okay. Well, I hope you understand the gist, the essence of of this passage. What I want to do now is I want to give you four ways to glorify God through sex. Four ways to glorify God through sex. And I hope that it will be extremely helpful whether you are single or whether you are married, whether you have kids or don't have kids. I want it to hear. I I can't say everything I want to say. I want to say a thousand things this morning, but I I have to restrain myself in order to to be helpful in the few things that I do say. And so the first way to glorify God through sex is to embrace sex as a good gift from a good God. Embrace sex as a good gift from a good God. Now you can just listen to me, you can write down the passages if you like, or you can just listen, probably be even better. But I want to tell you the reason that I can with authority say that sex is a good gift from a good God. We studied Colossians for about six months, and in Colossians 1, if you can remember, it says that by the Lord Jesus, all things were created. Which means that sex was created by the Lord Jesus. In Colossians 1.17, it says that in the Lord Jesus, all things hold together. Which means that sex continues to this very day and is held together by the Lord Jesus. In Ephesians 1, Paul tells us that God the Father put all things under God the Son's feet. Which means that sex is underneath the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We like to think that that Jesus has underneath His authority the church and the world and the powers and the dominions of this universe and the sun and the moon and the stars and everything else. And then sex is over here in its own category. Not true. Sex falls underneath the authority of Christ. Paul tells Timothy in his first letter, he says, Timothy, everything created by God is good. Which means sex is what? Good. Sex is good. And then he goes on to say in 1 Timothy, he says, nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And so that means that sex should be received as a gift from God, and it should also be something that we give thanks to God for. 
He says, listen, everything is made holy by the word of God and prayer, which means that sex should be sanctified by the word of God and through prayer. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul says, whatever you do, what does it say? Do everything, do all things, what? To the glory of God. To the glory of God. So sex should be done in such a way that glorifies God. And then Philippians 4, 4, Paul tells the church, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Always. Which means that sex is something that we should rejoice over and rejoice in. I believe that those verses in the New Testament are some of the reason why Al Mohler has made this statement about sex. Listen to this. He says, Christians have no right to be embarrassed when it comes to talking about sex and sexuality. An unhealthy reticence or embarrassment in dealing with these issues, listen, is a form of disrespect to God's creation. Whatever God made is good. And every good thing God has made has an intended purpose that ultimately reveals His own glory. When conservative Christians respond to sex with ambivalence or embarrassment, we slander the goodness of God and hide God's glory, which is intended to be revealed in the right use of creation's gifts. You tracking with me on that? You guys tracking? It's very important that we are neither ambivalent nor embarrassed about God's good gift of sex. Now, if you have your Bibles open, if, if you don't want to turn, that's fine. But if you have them open, turn to Genesis 2. Genesis chapter 2, because... I gave you a lot of New Testament passages that support this idea that sex is a good gift from a good God, but I want you to see the very origin behind sex. I want you to see the purpose of it and the initial creation of it. Sex is a good gift from a good God when it's enjoyed within the boundaries of God's design. As you're turning there, I will tell you that that the Colorado River runs through the Grand Canyon. And when it runs through the Grand Canyon, it is, it is about at its most narrow, its narrowest point. But the, the Colorado River is at its strongest and most beautiful and most functional nature when it's in between the Grand Canyon. When it goes on down through Arizona and California, it widens out, it shallows out, it becomes muddy and murky, and in some places it stinks. But when it's inside the canyon, it's deep, and it runs strong, and it's beautiful, and people love rafting down it and just looking at it. Well, sex is the same way in this respect. When it's in the confines of God's boundaries, it is beautiful and flourishing and excellent and glorious. But when it goes outside those boundaries, that's when it becomes ugly and deviant and dysfunctional. You guys track with that illustration? Okay, so Genesis 2, looking at verse 18 and then kind of 20 and 22 and 23 and 24. The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. I will make him a helper that goes with him perfectly. The two will become a perfect union, essentially. So the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. 
But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the creation of the first marriage. This is the institution of the first marriage. And this is the institution of the sexual union. And if you notice in that very last portion, as I've said before, the idea of marriage is that you leave your parents, you cleave and stick to your spouse, and then you weave with him or you weave with her in sexual union so that you consummate that marriage and you become truly one. It is a most beautiful thing. But, but, but commenting on this passage, I, I want to I quote Ben Patterson. Please track with this. It is so beautiful. Ben Patterson says, the great mystery of one becoming two foreshadows the greater mystery of two becoming one. One became two through the rib, right? Listen, he says, God's math is that one and one don't equal two, but one. And the one flesh is greater than the two that preceded it. In marriage, as with in the gospel, we find ourselves as we give ourselves away. Y'all track with that? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. We need to understand that sex is God's gift to us, and it is good. I, I actually know of a married couple who approached a pastor with a great sense of guilt and shame, and they felt like they had to confess to him that they were newlyweds, but they had had sex together on a Sunday. And they felt such shame that they approached him and said, what do we do? This... This belies, this demonstrates how when we miss the fact that God has created sex for marriage to be enjoyed through in worshiping Him in it, then we get all kind of messed up in our mind and in our heart and our consciences even betray us. So this is what I want us to do from, from this, this one point. I first want to say, let's do away with the nonsense of believing that sex is evil. Can we do that? I think probably most of us have already done that. Sex is created by God for the glory of God. Second, let's do away with the nonsense that sex should never be discussed. Listen, the Bible discusses it. The Bible teaches on it. Read the book of Genesis. Read Proverbs. Read Song of Songs. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We need to discuss it. We need to learn about it. We need to train our children in it. Let's do away with the nonsense, nonsense that sex should only be enjoyed by immoral, unspiritual people. 
I really think that that is kind of a misnomer, is that people who don't love God enjoy sex and have fun with sex and just, um, just have a blast, but Christians don't. They can't. It's, not, it's just not part of God's paradigm. I think we need to do away with that nonsense. What, what's, what immoral, unbelieving people enjoy is deviant, self-absorbed, idolatrous sex. That's what unbelievers enjoy. Christians should enjoy pure, sacrificial, worshipful sex. And so finally, I would say, let's embrace sex as a good gift from our good God. I want to give you a resource this morning. I'm going to give you a few resources, I think, on, on, uh, on most of the points. Under this first one, I would recommend to you a book called Sex and the Supremacy of Christ, edited by John Piper and Justin Taylor. Uh, a lot of the guys that you know uh, write chapters in this book, including Piper, including Taylor, Mark Dever, and others that we, there was a, is a wonderful resource, not only for yourself and possibly if you're married for your marriage, but also in the training of your children. Sex and the Supremacy of Christ, edited by John Piper. Great resource. Okay, so the first way to glorify God is to understand and embrace that sex is a good gift from a good God. Secondly, the way to glorify God is to enjoy sex inside the covenant of marriage. Enjoy sex inside the covenant of marriage. If you'll go back to Proverbs and look at chapter 5, verse 15. Chapter 5, verse 15. What I want us to see in verses 15 through 19 is that the father is telling his married son to enjoy sex in his marriage. And if you look at 15 through 19, I want you to see four concepts that he's driving home. All right. He describes sex inside of marriage as, first of all, as drinking. Look at verse 15, drinking. He's essentially saying, go to the well, drink from the well, and have your thirst satisfied. Now, I don't think it's necessary to get the whiteboard out and start drawing pictures of cisterns and wells and streams and fountains and, and all of that to help you make the connection of the metaphorical picture of those things with human anatomy and with male and female. But I will say this, the cistern and well in verse 15 are referring to the wife and the springs and streams of water refer to the husband. And what the dad is doing is he's painting a picture of mutual sexual enjoyment between a man and his wife without using the plain language of, of human anatomy and sexual function. That's what he's doing. And he's saying you need to drink from that well, drink from your own cistern, and enjoy it to the state of refreshment. Look down at verse 18. He just compounds that because he uses this word rejoicing. He says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Be glad in her. Celebrate her. Enjoy her to the absolute maximum. And then in verse 19, he says, delight in her. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. That, that word fill, or that term fill at all times with delight means to drink until you are completely full, completely refreshed, completely satisfied. And then again in verse 19, he says, very surprisingly, be intoxicated with her love. This word literally means to stagger or swerve in drunkenness. I don't know if you've ever seen anyone who is intoxicated uh, 
with alcohol. But if you've seen them try to walk, they generally uh, stagger and swerve around because they are so controlled by the, the content of, uh, of alcohol that they, they lose control of their faculties. And he's saying, be intoxicated with her love. Be so full of your wife's love and gloriously affected by sex with her that you feel that sense of staggering and swerving. Because that, that, is, that is very graphic. But that, that's what he's saying. I think the big idea in these five verses is completely satisfy your desires through sexual intimacy with your spouse. Now, if you look at verse 19, I want us to, I want us to see two important things about sex in the marriage covenant. Now, and, and this is a graphic statement. 19 is about as graphic as you're going to find in the Bible, along with uh, a number of passages in the Song of Songs. But I want you to see two things about the marriage covenant. Notice the quality and the quantity of sex in marriage. Look down at it. Look at verse 19. Look at the quality and the quantity. I think if if you were honest with what he's saying here, you would also agree with me that he's saying when you get married, put away all restraints and inhibitions and go for the gusto in both the quality and the quantity of your sexual life. And this is what he's saying. He's saying make it creative and consistent. Make it fun and frequent. Make it rich and regular. That's an instruction from God in the book of Proverbs. Could you guys agree with that? Okay. All right. Now, I got to ask the question this week, what then does it mean to worship God while I consciously enjoy sex in marriage? That is, a, that is a good question and one that's not just super easy to answer, but I want to try to, to, to answer this. So, so if, if the Proverbs writer is telling his son to enjoy sex inside the covenant of marriage, he would not be telling his son to, to do something that is contrary to worshiping God. So what he's saying is, is that you can worship God and enjoy sex in marriage. As a matter of fact, if you enjoy sex in marriage and you do it the right way, you will be worshiping God. And so I think the answer to the question, how can I be worshiping God when I'm having sex with my spouse? First, is that you do it with a spirit of thankfulness. You are thankful for what God has given to you in your spouse. You you have a great sense of gratitude that what He has laid out in Genesis 2 has come true for you in your life and in your marriage. God, thank You for this time. Thank You for my spouse. Thank You for the exhilaration and the intoxicating nature of this blessing. I think secondly, I would say that you worship God as you enjoy His gift of sex when you are selfless in the stewardship of the gift when you are selfless in the stewardship of the gift. I think one of the main reasons that Christian couples don't enjoy sex is because they're selfish. Selfish in not not just in sex, but selfish in everything. Um, Let me just say this. If you're married, I would say this. Selfishness is your greatest enemy, and sacrifice is your greatest friend. Selfishness is your greatest enemy, Sacrifice is your greatest friend, and that feeds right into the marriage bed and right into your sexual relationship. When your marriage is marked by joyful sacrifice, then your sex life 
will be marked by sacrificial joy. Third thing I just want to say is that you worship God as you enjoy the gift of sex when you intentionally connect the gift of sexual intimacy to the rest of your relationship with your spouse. When you connect it with the rest of your relationship with your spouse. Sex in marriage should never occur in a vacuum. It should always be related to the rest of your relationship with him or with her. Now, this is not um, directly from the text here in in chapter 5. But I do want to say this. Um, For Christian men, sexual intimacy is the fuel for relational intimacy and sacrifice. It's the fuel. What I mean by that is for men, when they enjoy their wives and their wives give themselves to them, it really is a motivator to get that man to love and serve and, and, and bleed for his family if he has to. But on the other hand, for the Christian woman, sexual intimacy is the finality or, or if you want to call it the culmination of relational intimacy and joyful sacrifice. So in other words, a woman is more like, let's, let's enjoy talking with one another, let's enjoy helping one another, let's enjoy sacrificing for one another, and then that will culminate in sexual enjoyment of one another. But the man kind of looks at it vice versa. Or this is often, it's kind of an observation here. So this is what I want to say. There's got to be a mutual understanding of these two ideas in a marriage. The husband must understand that the wife will enjoy sex more when there's good communication and joyful sacrifice. The wife has to understand that the husband will enjoy the marriage more and serve the family more when there's good sex. And when the husband understands his wife in that way and the wife understands her husband in that way, then you have mutual satisfaction in the sexual relationship and mutual joy in the relational aspect of the marriage. You understand that concept? Because I think that's really big. I think it's really big. And so the thing that will mess up the marriage is selfishness on the part of either person. Um, I think that what will mess it up is when a man labors and serves and sacrifices and works hard and a wife withholds sex from, from him. Or when a man has sex with his wife because she gives him that blessing and that opportunity, and then he goes out and lives the rest of his day in selfishness and in, um, and in sin. That, that just messes everything up. But when they understand one another and they meet one another in the place where they both are blessed, then you have glorious, glorious union with one another. So this is what I want to say to you who are married. Intentionally pursue sexual intimacy and satisfaction with your spouse. Intentionally pursue intimacy and satisfaction with your spouse. Work hard at serving your spouse, understanding your spouse, and blessing your spouse. And I want to also say this according to this passage. Offer offer yourself to one another frequently and gladly. I read this week about uh, a true story of a, of a Puritan woman back in the 1700s 
who told her pastor about her husband who was not having sex with her. He was not giving himself to her. And so the pastor warned the husband, and he did nothing about it. And so the woman told the church about it, and he still did nothing about it, and they kicked him out of the fellowship. They were following 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 18. But the Puritans, who we often consider as prudes, understood the the obligation of the marriage covenant. And so offer yourself to one another frequently and gladly. I want to give you two sources, uh, resources for you. If you want to improve and be helped, if you want to help your, uh, any friends. First one is um, a book called Intended for Pleasure by Ed Wheat. Ed Wheat. Um, this book would only be for married couples or those who are about to be married. Intended for Pleasure by Ed Wheat. I think it's probably the best book out there in preparing uh, engaged couples and for helping married couples. And then there's a book called Sheet Music, which I really do recommend with reservations. But um, the subtitle is Uncovering the Secrets of Sexual Intimacy in Marriage. It's also very helpful, but it should also not be read until you are about to be married or while married. So, Intended for Pleasure and Sheet Music. And it is quiet in here today. (laughs) And I've got to hustle just a little bit. All right. So here we go. Third way to glorify God in sex is to avoid sex outside the covenant of marriage. Avoid sex outside the covenant of marriage. We see this in, really we see it in the whole passage, five through seven. But... My principles here are really going to come from 5, verse 20 through 6, 35. And I think the basic point of this section is that there is a high price to pay for committing adultery. There's a high price to pay for committing adultery. And so we need to be instructed and we need to take it to heart. And I want to say these things. If you're taking notes, this would be good to write down. That sex outside the covenant of marriage is at least four things. It is first, deviant. Sex outside of marriage. And, and, and I don't just mean sexual intercourse. I mean sexual lust. I mean feeding your flesh. I mean watching pornography. I mean flirting with someone who is not your spouse. I mean anything that is outside the blessing of the marriage covenant. It is deviant. It deviates from God's beautiful design for sex. It's not just merely sinful. It's not just merely wrong. It is deviant. And I want you to know that when you pursue another person or a screen or a magazine or a billboard for too long, you are denying the image of God that is inside of you. You are deviant. And you need to know that. Second, it is defiling. It makes you dirty. It makes you unclean. It pollutes you. Third, it is destructive. It destroys your worship. It destroys your marriage. It destroys your family. It destroys your church. It destroys your life. To think that you can pursue deviant sexual pleasure and not destroy you and those around you is the biggest lie that men and women have bought from Satan that's come down the pike in years and years. It is destructive. 
And I want to say this, it is damning. It is damning. It condemns you to hell. Um, I've used this before, but I, I will never forget where I was running. I was on a three-mile run listening to my iPod probably ten years ago when John Piper was giving an illustration about him counseling a guy in his church. And this guy in his church was married, but having sex with another woman. And, and John Piper said, if you don't stop having sex with the other woman, then you will go to hell. And, and the man said, wait a minute, you, you've got this all wrong. I am saved. I have given my life to Jesus and I have been covered by his blood. And Piper went on to make the point that if you persist in sexual sin, then you are proving yourself never to have received the grace of God that you have professed with your lips. Very important. Sexual sin, unrepentant sexual sin, proves that you did not belong to God in the first place. Now, if you just look down, beginning in chapter 5, verse 20, if you just kind of look down at the passage, I want you to see a few, a few things. I want you to see that sex outside of marriage is seen by God and ultimately judged by God. You, you never commit sexual sin in the dark. Like, it may be dark literally, but it's not dark spiritually. God sees it all. I don't care if you go in at midnight into a bedroom, into the closet of the bedroom. It doesn't matter how dark it is. God sees it, He knows it, and He ultimately judges it. And then notice, too, that sex outside of marriage produces bondage and lostness and death. That's what he's painting here. You become enslaved to sexual deviancy and sexual defilement. And as much as you say you hate it, and as much as you say you don't want to go back to it, it draws you back there time and time and time again. Why? Because you have become its slave. You have become in bondage to it. And ultimately, it will take you down. If we begin looking at chapter 6, starting with verse 20, This first section right here, I want to give you a formula because this is very important. It's simple, but it's important. So write this down if you're taking notes. Parental instruction plus personal resolve equals sexual purity. Parental instruction plus personal resolve equals sexual purity. And what I mean by that, Chris, is that you and I can train our kids in the way that they should go. Man, we can love them and shepherd them. But if our sons and our daughters don't have a heart for God and don't have a desire to please God, they're still going to go the way of sexual deviancy because mine and your shepherding is not all that it takes. And that's what he's saying right there in chapter 6. You have to have the both. You have to have the, the parent shepherding and the child who's wanting to guard their heart from sexual deviancy. That's going to create purity. If you look back down, I just want to give you some very important instructions. First of all, don't entertain the possibility of sex outside of marriage. Don't ever entertain it. Don't ever think that, you know, what if? What if this could happen? Or what if I found myself in a hotel? Or what? Don't even ever, ever, ever go there. Shut, that, shut those thoughts out of your mind. And then not only that, don't put yourself in a situation to be tempted to have sex outside of marriage. Take radical steps never to be in a physical place that would tempt you with another person to have sex outside of marriage. 
And furthermore, don't fix your eyes on a person who would tempt you to have sex out of marriage. Don't let your eyes linger. Guard your heart against sexual deviancy and desires. Because he goes on to say, sex outside of marriage will destroy you, it is stupid, and it will produce lifelong enemies. Now, I want to give you a truth here. Sexual sin complicates everything. It just complicates everything. When when you disobey God through sexual sin, this is what it does. It hardens your heart toward God. And it hardens your heart toward the people that you're in relationship with, covenant relationship with. You begin to accuse your spouse. You begin to see all the problems with your kids. You begin to be sarcastic and accusatory in nature. You just become hard. And not only does it affect you, when your your family, your spouse, and your kids, and your friends find out that you are sexually deviant and you are pursuing sexual deviancy and adultery, they become hardened toward you and often embittered toward you because of who you are and what you've done and how you've broken the covenant that you're supposed to be in. And so hardness and callousness and embitterness go both ways when you pursue sex outside of the covenant of marriage. I've never heard a man say, my sexual sin caused me to be refreshed and renewed in my worship of God, in my love for my wife, in affection for my kids, and service at my church. It rejuvenated my life as an ambassador for Jesus. I've never heard that. Why? Because it's never happened. Ever. Your sexuality is a powerful, delicate gift from God, and you cannot violate His gift without tasting the damaging results. Listen to these statistics. 85% of men have premarital sex. 25% of married men have sex outside of marriage. 15% of married women have sex outside of marriage. More than 50% of men watch pornography at least once a month. More than 30% of women watch porn at least once a month. I want to tell you that I took what I felt like were the most conservative statistics that I could find. Look at chapter 6, verse 25. Look at chapter 6, verse 25. He says, Do not desire her beauty in your heart. When a wise man sees a beautiful woman who is not his wife, this is how he thinks. Yes, she is beautiful. God is good at creating beauty. But her beauty has absolutely nothing to do with me. She is beautiful and irrelevant. I am so out of here mentally. I am so out of here emotionally. And what, that, what happens is that wise man keeps going straight on ahead for Jesus Christ into a destiny of greatness, into a destiny of wisdom, and into a destiny of joyful, sacrificial service to his family. But a fool, a fool never even engages that thought and finds himself or herself fully into that 
heartfelt allurement of beauty. This is what I want to do. I want to offer you hope because this is the reality, folks. Every one of us are sexual fools. Every one of us are. Um, The reason I know that is because we're all sinners. But it's not enough to know that we are sexual fools. We've also got to know how good it is to be loved by God. And so this is what I want to say. There is only one true friend for sexual fools. His name is Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus Christ. He wants you to know that your sexuality is a magnificent gift from God to be enjoyed for His glory and for your joy. But when you make a mess of your sexual life through deviancy outside the covenant of marriage, there is a price to pay, but there is forgiveness and grace to be offered through faith in Him. Jesus wants, this is the deal. Jesus wants to be your ally against sexual sin. When the United States had allies in World War II, these allies came beside them and they fought the enemy with everything that they had in unity. And Jesus wants to come beside you and fight the enemy of sexual sin with everything that he has. And everything he has is a perfect life, a substitutionary death, a powerful resurrection that both will forgive you and cleanse you and empower you to live purely for the glory of his great name. And so run to Christ, fight deviant sexual pleasure, not by gritting your teeth, but by delighting in the bountiful love of the Son of God. I have some resources that I'd like to show you here. These are three of probably the best that I have. The first one is a book by Russell Moore. This is an amazing book. It's called Tempted and Tried. Tempted and Tried by Russell Moore. It's a book on temptation and how to fight it successfully. Wonderful book, Russell Moore. Second book is for those who have been engaged in pornography and are trying to successfully fight against it. It's a book called Finally Free. Finally Free by Heath Lambert. Wonderful book. It is gospel-laced and it gives you practical ways to fight Sexual sin, finally free. And then, if you want a book to help, like your son, possibly your daughter as well, that's more basic and uh, it's shorter, so it's easier to read. It's by Randy Alcorn, who's a wonderful writer. Uh, it's called The Purity Principle. The Purity Principle God's Safeguards for Life's Dangerous Trails. I wish this book had more gospel. Um, teeth to it. It, it. it doesn't, but it's still really good, especially if you're preaching the gospel and training your kids in the gospel uh, frequently. So those are the resources. All right, finally. We're going to run a little over today. It's okay. Don't, don't get uptight. I hope that the adults in the training center don't either. All right. Fourth, train your children for all three of the above. Train your children for all three of the above. In other words, train them to embrace sex as a good gift. Train them to enjoy sex inside the covenant of marriage. And train them to avoid sex outside the covenant of marriage. Now, we do that by, by explaining 
and training and demonstrating to them in such a way that they look at marriage and see that it is sweet. They look at sexual deviancy and see that it is empty, that it is vain, that it is worthless. You know, this is one of my prayers. One of my prayers is that that when my boys travel south on Quintard from the Jacksonville area, and they see that woman plastered on the billboard right there on kind of, it's still in Anniston, but not in Oxford just yet. When they see that, I want them to think for the next years to come, what a waste, what vanity. I'm turning away because that has nothing to do with me. That's what I want them to think. But I've got to train them to see the vanity. I've got to train them to see the emptiness. I've got to train them to have pity for a woman like that, pity for the people who want to promote such emptiness and a desire for sexual purity. I've got to train all that into them if they're ever going to think that way. And so I want to tell you this. Training kids about sex helps prepare them for life and prevent them from death. If you ignore training your kids about sex, then you are training your kids to die. You are training your kids towards spiritual death and destruction. And so you must train your kids. And that's exactly what the writer is doing for his son in chapters 5, 6, and 7. I also want to say that training is not enough. They must have a personal resolve to choose the right way, which is why you and I have to give them the Word of God and the Gospel of God. And then we have to pray, pray, pray that God changes their hearts from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh, into a, from a dead heart into an alive heart. Because if they don't become alive, they will see sexual deviancy as something to be pursued rather than something to be fled. So train your children in the purpose of sex in marriage and the perversion of sex outside of marriage. I think what the the author wants us to understand are these things. Is that youth are often foolish, naive, rebellious, and sexually charged. I believe that not only does he indicate that, but I think that we can all, if we're adults, can say that that is true. That youth are foolish, naive, rebellious, and sexually charged. Can we all not say that that's the case? So he knows that. And so he knows that significant training has to be given. I think we need to understand that the woman in chapter 7 is available everywhere you go. David, the woman in chapter 7 is available everywhere you take Nathan. In your home, in your neighborhood, in your community, on your vacations. And I, you know, I don't know how good it would do, but she is available on your phone, your computer, your magazines, your television, your movies, your cartoons, your newspaper, your music. She's available in all those places inside your home. She's available at sporting events, retail stores, grocery stores, the mall, the movie theater, neighbors' houses, relatives' houses, and ultimately in your child's mind and heart. I want to tell you this. God spared me from a youth of just full sexual deviancy. And I praise God for His grace in that matter. But I was introduced to sexual deviancy three different times when I was growing up. 
Not by a stranger, not by somebody at school, but by three different relatives in their homes. Three Christian homes. Parents, be warned. Be warned. You think you know, but you don't really know. So understand that the woman in chapter 7 is available everywhere to go. And understand that sexual sin looks really enticing and beautiful. Like, you know, the woman doesn't come and she's just not ugly as a stick, you know, and she's, she's, not, she's not dressed in a way that looks unappealing. I mean, it looks beautiful. It looks appealing. It looks wonderful. It looks pure. It looks great. We need to understand that when our, when our children look upon a woman, if they're a boy, or look upon a man, if they're a girl, it's not exactly... Um, wrong for them to notice, wow, that's really nice. But they just need to know what it is. They need to discern what it is from what it's not. So understand that sexual sin looks enticing and beautiful, that it disguises itself as love. It disguises itself as love. I see this all the time because I go on so many school campuses, but you have a, a young man and young woman, they're having sex together, and they call it love. Because this woman calls it love. It's not love. Love is sacrificially doing the highest good for the other person. So every time that sexual sin is occurring, you can never call it love because they're not pursuing one another's highest good for the glory of God. Understand that sexual sin is deceitful and destructive and more so than just about every other sin. I I, I think that's important. There is a devastation. There's a devastation that happens personally, maritally, familially, and church-wide with sexual sin that doesn't occur in other sins. Now, is lying wrong? Yes, lying is wrong. Is, Is idolizing sports wrong? Absolutely it's wrong. But I just want you to know that the consequences to sexual sin and sexual deviancy are far, 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 far reaching. And you need to be warned by that. And you need to warn your children about that. Understand that sexual sin is enslaving. And understand that you have to do more than shield your child's eyes. You must shepherd his or her heart. So let me give you... um, Let me give you three applications under this section here, under train your children. Train your children toward life. Warn your children of death. And pray for your children every single day. Train your children toward life. Warn your children of death. And pray for your children every single day. Guys, there there aren't There aren't a billion great resources on how to train your kids toward God's good gift of sex. Um, And I know there are better ones than I have, but the two that I found very helpful are first, a book by Byron Yawn, a guy went to the seminary that I went to, a very good pastor and preacher, What Every Man Wishes His Father Had Told Him. What Every Man Wishes His Father Had Told Him. There are two chapters that are priceless in this book by Byron Yawn. What every man wishes his father had told him. And then I just was looking online one day and found a a series of articles 
titled Talking With Your Children About Marriage and Sex. Talking With Your Children About Marriage and Sex by Jay Younts. I, I don't know, it's probably about 12 pages here, but I've got it all marked up. A lot of highlights here, and I, I found it to be greatly helpful in how to begin to train your young children. Folks, this is the reality. I think we have about 100 people that come on Sundays, and about 40 of them, at least, are children. Okay? That means that over the next 5 to 10 years, this church is going to be full of young men and young women. And it is either going to be full of young men and young women who are pursuing sexual deviancy because they've not been trained and they have no personal resolve, or it's going to be full of young men and young women who are using their singleness for the glory of God and preparing themselves for enjoyable sex when they get married. It's either one of those two options. And it's up to us on how to train them and how to love them well. i got to see if I want to say one more thing. Okay, Phil, if you'll come up. Um, if you would, kind of tuck your things away. Uh, maybe get in a spirit of, of prayerfulness, spirit of meditation upon these matters. I want to quote... Uh, an author, to kind of sum up what I uh, have been trying to say about the sexual covenant. When we deal with human sexuality and married love, we are not dealing with simply biological and sociological byproducts of an evolutionary process. We are dealing with the realities within the created order that have divine origin and divine purpose. Earth is supposed to speak of heaven because it came from the Creator's hand. And to treat sexual love apart from the divine intent would be to miss the glory of God. Bow your heads. And I want to ask you if you need to do at least one of these three things. Do you need to repent? Do you need to repent of not pursuing the goodness of God through sex in marriage? Have you found yourself in a place where you neglect it, you despise it, you're unwilling to engage in it, you're unwilling to be happy in it, you're unwilling to serve in it, you begrudgingly participate in it because it's your quote-unquote duty, or because you know that you need to or supposed to or that might possibly make your marriage better? Do you need to repent? of a dysfunctional view of sex in marriage? Do you need to repent of sexual deviancy? Are you single 
and you have been finding sexual fulfillment in a deviant and destructive path? Are you married? And instead of pursuing the wife of your youth and enjoying her to the max or enjoying him to the max, you are getting satisfaction and delight from somebody on a screen or from something in a magazine or somebody on a billboard and you are finding more satisfaction in deviancy and voyeurism than you are in joyfully serving the person that God has, has covenantally put into your life. Do you need to repent today? Do you need to repent of ignoring your child's need to be trained, to be taught, and to see a marriage that is full of delight and full of love and full of affection? Do you need to repent today as a parent? Repent today as a married person. Repent today as a single person. God has graciously given you right now this moment to repent of your sin and to run to the cross and say, God, would you forgive me of my sins? Would you cleanse me of my deviancy? Would you cleanse me of my neglect? And would you show me a better way? Church, I call you to repent. I call you to turn. And therefore, I call you to renewal. Be renewed today. Find hope in Jesus. Listen, we're all naked before Him. He sees every part of us. He knows all the twisted things that we think. He knows all of the the perverted thoughts that we have. He, He knows what we see. He knows what we do. He knows how we angle ourselves. And He knows, married couple, how you use sex in order to get what you want or or to, to somehow lash back at your spouse. He knows all of that. And so would you be renewed by forgiveness? Would you be refreshed by the cross? Would you be enjoying the forgiveness and the grace that is to be had through Jesus Christ and His Gospel work? And I want to call you to resolve. Would you be resolved today? Would you say that by the power of the Holy Spirit... By the work of the gospel, washing over my polluted heart and and toward my calloused heart and my embittered nature, by by the power of the Spirit, I resolve to be a single man or a single woman who pursues sexual purity until I can find sexual fulfillment in a spouse. I am resolved to look the other way, to not walk down that street, to not look on that screen, to find accountability in order to preserve myself for what God has waiting for me. Would you be resolved, husband and wife, to work through your sexual problems? Would you be resolved to work through the issues that each of you have that are preventing you from enjoying the delight and the satisfaction and the enjoyment that God has graciously and gloriously designed for your marriage? Would you be resolved, parent, not to ignore your obligation to train your kids? 
Would you be resolved to say, you know what? I'm going to research through books and through articles. I'm going to talk to the pastors or the elders or the deacons. I'm going to talk to people who are older than me, who have done it right. People who are are the same age as me, who have done it wrong. I'm going to learn and grow so that I can train my 11-year-old or my 13-year-old or my 14-year-old in the way to pursue sexual purity and to prevent sexual perversion. Would you resolve today, parent? To do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is your responsibility, church. Take it with great knowledge that He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. May God give us a full embracing of His plan for sex inside of marriage. Let's let this song be a way to wash over us and to cleanse us and to help us be renewed in the worship of Him.